Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Um, this episode is going to finish up um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, and uh, it's 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 been a I think it's been a great series. It looks like from our, our listeners, we've had a great response to truly one of, uh, in my opinion, uh, one of my favorite and uh, one of the best presidents that we've ever had for setting up so many so many social programs uh, before and after the war to get us pull us out of the Great Depression and uh, to lead the world, which America should be leading, which we're not leading the world now. But uh, FDR took the world by the horns and, and literally uh, working with our friends and can- our Canadian neighbors and, and Britain and uh, you know defeated the, uh, the Nazis on the beaches of Normandy. So let's finish up. Uh, we have a short episode here, but we'll talk about later on in episodes, uh, different kinds of episodes, but for, for this, this, uh, this reading, we're, we're done with FDR for now. But. So let's talk about the relationships with foreign leadership, FDR. In the month of Saul, the start of World War II, Franklin began correspondence with the infamous Winston S. Churchill to discuss the United States support of Britain. These two men formed a close relationship that allowed them to work together very easily. Churchill said in his eulogy to Roosevelt, in FDR there there died the greatest American friend Britain, and possibly the world has ever known. Between 1939 and 1949, Churchill and Roosevelt exchanged around 1,700 letters and telegrams. Imagine that. These are not the ridiculous way people don't know how to communicate by using text today and whatever ridiculous Spotify and all this crap. So they actually wrote uh, over 1,700 letters that had to be delivered from one country to the next. That's absolutely amazing, isn't it? From 39 to 45. And they actually met in person. They actually knew how to speak. Isn't that amazing? We find the young people today can't even talk. They can't even write. Um, but they actually met 11 times in those those years with about 120 days of face-to-face contact. And this was all to help save the world. So this was according to, to Mr. Winston S. Churchill. Um, funnily enough, Franklin harbored a small resentment against uh, Prime Minister uh, Churchill before the relationship grew closer. More than 20 years prior to their engagements during World War II, Roosevelt met Churchill in 1918 when the when. <coughs> when the prior war was under undersecretary of the United States Navy. When Franklin gave a speech in London at a dinner, Churchill was the audience's famous figure. Roosevelt said that Churchill behaved like a stinker, loading it all over all of us. He even said to his American, his American ambassador to Britain, I have always disliked him since the time I met him in England in 1918. I'm giving him my attention now because there is a strong possibility we will, he will become prime minister and I want to get him in my hand now. Although he wrote to Churchill, my dear Churchill, it is because you and I occupied similar positions in the world and that I want you to know how glad I am that you are back again in the admiralty. At the time, Roosevelt did not know how important his relationship with Churchill would ever prove to be to actually save the world. The two were very polar opposites and believed very different things. But they knew early on that they must work alongside one another to defeat Hitler's rise in power. So we have similar rises today. 
Churchill tried for many years to lure Franklin into war. On May 15th of 1940, Churchill told Franklin, If necessary, we shall continue the war alone. And we are not afraid of that, if you wish not to, to bear arms next to us. But I trust you realize that the voice and force of the United States may count for nothing if they are withheld too long. Roosevelt occupied, or replied rather, that a step of that kind could not be taken. In the end, it was not Churchill who persuaded Roosevelt to, jo- to, to join the war. Rather, it was Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor that was the igniter. When Roosevelt achieved re-election in 1940, Churchill felt immediate relief as Franklin shipped military gear to Great Britain without required monetary repayment, free. Under the Lend-Lease program, the United States sent aid, oil, food, warships, weaponry, warplanes, etc. to the United Kingdom to free France, the Republic of China, and later the Soviet Union, along with the other allied nations, in an attempt to stifle the German plans and squelch Hitler. The program was signed into law on March 11th, 1941 and lasted until September 1945. Engaging the program formally ended the United States' vision of neutrality in World War II, forcing the country to step away from its non-internalist policy that it had maintained since 1931. Churchill was enthusiastic about the United States' involvement. In fact, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, his first reaction was in anticipation of the United States' help. We have won the war. At this point, the United States had no option but to enter the war, and Churchill knew their help was with the Allies needed to break the German hold on Europe. Roosevelt and Churchill held a secret meeting in Argentina, Newfoundland, and on August 14, 1941, drafted the Atlantic Charter, which outlined global, wartime, and post-war goals. It was not the last time they would meet, but it was instead the first of many wartime conferences they would both attend. Churchill, Churchill and Roosevelt attended the second Quebec conference in 1944, a meeting in which Winston S. Churchill, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and their chiefs of staff discussed Allied occupation zones in Germany, demilitarization of Germany, continuation of the U.S. Lend-Lease aid to help Great Britain, and utilization of the Royal Navy in Japan. Here, the two leaders drafted and signed the original Montague Plan, which suggested that allies in Germany after World War II should eradicate the German military's warmongering by removing its armament industry and other industries necessary to military strength, which included destroying all industrial plants and equipment in the entire country of Germany. The plan, which pledged to convert Germany into a country primarily agricultural and pastoral in character, was not adopted. But it did have minor influences on the Allies planning strategies. Unfortunately, the Nazi German government utilized the plan as a scare tactic for citizens, encouraging the people, their people, to keep fighting and keep fighting harder to eventually take over the world. From January 14th to January 23rd, 1943, 
the Allied powers met in Casablanca, Morocco for the Casablanca Conference. Here, they produced the Casablanca Declaration, or the Doctrine of Unconditional Surrender. This document declared to the world that the Allies wanted an unconditional surrender from the Axis powers, including Germany. Attending the conference were the leaders Winston S. Churchill, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Charles de Gaulle. Joseph Stalin claimed that he needed to attend the Stalingrad crisis in the Soviet Union and claimed he was unable to attend the meeting. In February of 1945, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin attended the Yalta Conference, codenamed the Argono Conference, in Lividia Palace near the Yalta in Crimea, Soviet Union. In this meeting, they planned to create the plans for a post-war peace and to determine how they would reestablish the bedraggled nations of post-war Europe. Since Stalin's forces were in Poland and Romania as part of the westward drive, he felt he could dictate terms from a strong position. Secretary of State James B. Burns said, it was not a question of what we would let the Russians do, but what we could get the Russians to do. Roosevelt hoped that Stalin would commit Russia to participate in the the eventual start of the United Nations. The plan for the conference was to meet in the Mediterranean, but Stalin refused and cited that his doctors said he should take not take any more long trips from all the stress of the war. Each leader appeared at the conference with his own goal. Roosevelt wanted the Soviet Union to support the United States stand against Japan and the U.S. Pacific War. Churchill wanted Eastern and Central Europe to adopt free elections and democratic government systems. Stalin wanted Russia to maintain a severe of political influence in Eastern and Central Europe for national security. Stalin pushed particularly for control of Poland, saying that because the Russians had greatly sinned against Poland, the Soviet government was trying to atone for those sins. We know that was false, don't we? In finality, Stalin wanted the Soviet Union to keep the parts of eastern Poland that they annexed in 1939. In exchange, Poland could extend its borders into Germany. The three leaders agreed to alter previous negotiations on occupation zones in Germany. The United States, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union would all maintain portions. In 1945, Franklin had begun to understand Churchill's warning about Stalin. In March of 1945, sent messages to the Russian leader that accused him of breaking the Yalta commitments. Stalin replied with an accusation that the Allies were plotting without him in a separate peace with Adolf Hitler. Roosevelt said, I cannot avoid a feeling of bitter resentment towards your informers, whoever they are, for such vile misrepresentations of my actions or to those of my trusted subordinates. So that'll end our uh, episode of FDR talking about his relations with foreign leaders at during and the end of the war. So hope everyone enjoyed uh, our little segment here on FDR. Thanks so much for listening.